everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, we're going to answer questions that we received from the Ask Me Anything time this past Sunday, June 28th. We've been doing an AMA time at the end of our Sunday services, and today our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, is joined by Nicole Kyle, our Director of Music and Worship Arts, to talk through questions about the sermon, as well as some unrelated questions on topics like baptismal regeneration and justice and reconciliation. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, it's Nicole here. I'm here with Nick, and um, we're gonna do some. We're gonna answer some questions from the AMA from the sermon this morning, which was Sunday, June 28th. Also, Nicole, known as Nicole Kyle and Nick Gibson. <laughs> yes, that's true. All right, so let's just jump right in. Um, I'll give a well. Actually, I don't even mean that because I'm gonna give a little bit of context, and then we'll jump into it. But for context. Uh, during Nick's sermon, um, at the beginning of it, you talked about how there are a lot of uh, a lot of difficult things happening culturally, specifically within our church. Um, you shared about Pastor Lloyd leaving; he's taken a job mm-hmm. in Illinois, and so he'll be leaving at the end of the month. Um, and then you preached a sermon on, okay, so what do we do? How do we continue to do the next right thing? even when we're in the midst of a lot of difficulty. And um, you preached out of Luke 17. During the AMA, in the service, we answered a lot of questions about Lloyd leaving. So we're not Mm going to – we got through all of them. So we're not going to address any of those here. So if anyone has questions about his departure, you can listen to the end of the sermon. Yeah. um, We we could probably tell people that he's going to River Valley Community Church in Aurora, Illinois. mm -hmm. He's going to leave in approximately six weeks. Yeah. And yeah. Those are the and days. we're and we're happy sad. We're happy sad. Yep. Yeah. All right. So first question on the sermon. How does your sermon mesh with the prayer of the father of the sick son? Um, and in that prayer it says, Help me in my unbelief. Yeah. Does that unfairly shift the burden of faith? Yeah, so so to put this in context, I was I was arguing out of Luke 17, 1 to 10, that when the apostles say, increase our faith, that is not a rightly pious mm-hmm. statement to Jesus. They just want more of him, but that they are saying that what he's asking of them in the preceding verses is kind of impossible yeah. and they need their faith dramatically increased. And yeah, Jesus when you- rejects that idea by saying, look, if you have the faith of mustard seed, if you have the smallest piece of real faith, then you can yeah. do more than you ever dreamed. It's not really what Jesus is doing. He's rejecting the idea that the issue is volume of faith. Yeah. When we, um, when we got to this passage, when we went through the gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. um, it was the first time I had heard this passage preached in that way. And I was like, Oh my goodness, that's so different. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, I just am so prone to think of, to think of the characters that we're reading about as um, I guess less dynamic and less uh, less human, and to think, but so so anyway, it's very helpful to recognize that no, that's that this was a cop out from them. Yeah, people don't <laughs> people have people usually get one idea or another of Jesus in their mind. Either that he's like this, that he's like the great confronter, 
or that he is this like super compassionate person mm-hmm. who's always there, thereing people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he just is the per- he's perfect. So he's exactly what you should be in any given situation. Mm-hmm. So th- the merging of all the virtues in their proper order, ordered according to wisdom in a particular moment, which is that's called prudence, right? Knowing the right thing to do at the right time in the right way relative to the right truths. Right. right? So prudence is in that sense, the queen of the virtues and in terms of knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, so anyway, in this case, Jesus is like saying, you guys know that the issue is not quantity of faith. It's quality of faith. If you have the smallest amount that is qualitatively real faith, you don't need more quantity of faith. Mm -hmm. Any real faith is more powerful than you've dared imagine yet. The problem yeah. is that you think you need more faith, mm-hmm. but you actually haven't 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 actually accepted the first idea of faith, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom of wisdom, or right. God is the creator and you are the creation. Right. Therefore, He is infinitely your superior and has entire authority over you. Like, like that basic idea mm-hmm. um, isn't there if you think that you don't have to forgive forgive somebody, or if you think you've done enough. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know who you are. You don't know what you are. So anyway, in Mark chapter nine, there's this passage where Jesus is coming down out of the mount, out, off of the Mount of Transfiguration. His <laughs> apostles have prayed for this boy who has a demon that appears to be like opportunistly, opportunistly epileptic, like throwing the kid mm-hmm. down in fits, and, but like throwing him in fire and water and right, stuff. You know? Right, And they, and so the guy turns to Jesus and he says, "Ask him to heal his son," and the the um the father says if you can do anything please take pity on us and heal him right if you can if you can if there's anything you mm-hmm. can do so jesus says what do you mean if you can mm-hmm. everything and then he says everything is possible for the one who believes so you see in that case yeah he is actually telling that father he is telling the father that he's shifting responsibility but in a way you wouldn't think like what jesus is saying is the, the guy comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, and the guy says, and Jesus says, no, 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 this actually comes back to you, whether or not you believe. Yeah. I can do it. Now, Jesus isn't saying he can only heal a kid if the guy believes in him. What he's doing, he's teaching a pastoral lesson. He's saying, you can't put this on me. You have to believe. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, Jesus is doing the same thing with this guy. Yeah. But when he says... I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. What he's saying is, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done right. a duty. Right, like right saying, exactly. Uh-huh. I will do everything I can to believe in this present moment, but yeah. please help me yes. emotionally because I am struggling believing this, right? And then right. Jesus meets him. So yeah, it is a different passage. It has a slightly different emphasis, Yeah, but the two aren't in contradiction to each other. Mm-hmm. If yeah, that makes sense. Good. In both yeah, cases, Jesus is saying, you need to believe. And in both cases, they need to believe in him because mm-hmm. he is the he's the locus of that power, right? Know? Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. And you don't need um, a lot of faith. I mean, in either case, but yeah. what Jesus is saying is, if you have enough faith to ask Jesus to heal your son, you also have enough faith to believe in God. And if you believe in God, then you believe that God is God. And if God is God, then God is King. And if God is King, then you're His servant. Like it all yeah. just flows. Uh huh. Well, that gets to the next question, which is about the quantity of faith now. So the question is, can someone have more or less faith or is faith something you either have or you don't have? And also this particular person is wondering if you still farm tilapia. Yeah. The answer is no. 
I don't farm tilapia anymore. <laughs> I just did one batch of them and it was a sufficient disaster that my wife has asked me not to do it again. Though yeah. we have lots of fond and not fond memories from that yeah. thing. We learned a lot, had a lot of really cool experiences. Anyway. Yes. Um, yeah, I would say yes to both of those. I, I would say, I do think there is more faith and less faith. I think you can have real faith. And for example, the, the Bible talks about having the gift of faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Because of spiritual That came faith. to mind as well to me. Yeah. And I I don't think that means they're the only people who are Christians. I think that they right. have more faith for things, certain things. Yes. I think mm-hmm. part of the difference is, is that having more faith isn't related to the basic commands of fundamental obedience. Mm. So like forgiving another person who repents. There's right. nothing in Christian faith more fundamental than that, mm-hmm. than forgiveness, right? And so if you said, if you said, um, uh, I want to not commit adultery, but help me, help me uh, have more faith. And you're like, mm-hmm. no. Right, no. yeah. No, it, if you don't, if you're willing to commit adultery, then you have lost the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you don't have anything. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the very foundation of faith. It's the mustard seed. And yeah. so- you need to find that it's not a quantity. It's a quality for you. Right. But then also I, yeah, I think that there's like, there is more faith. Like I think people who, who choose to do things that they don't have to do, like missionaries or. Right. Right. When Scott and I were, um, when we graduated from college, decided to work for the, for a ministry, we had to raise our financial support. And Mm -hmm. I remember people talking about how it would stretch and grow our faith that we would Mm -hmm. believe God capable of doing more than we ever thought prior to that because we would see him do these things. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely true. I, I mean, we we started out and then we just would see him do incredible thing after incredible thing of providing for us that w- we got to the end and we thought, well, what can't he do? I mean, he's right. we left staff and we were afraid to go into salaried jobs because at that point, it felt so much more secure to just continue to trust God for our finances because we saw him provide. And that was, mm-hmm. I look at that and point to that as an example of a, a season of my life where he grew my faith in him because I saw him do these things. Yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I just think in that particular context, the the things in Luke 17, one to four, whatever it is, mm-hmm. are are f- super fundamental to just being a servant of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if you have any faith, then you should have faith for those. You'll have, you have enough faith for those things right. if it's operative, but yeah, yeah he's showing that that's things. not the question here. Yeah. Right. right. Mm-hmm. But for, yeah, for other things, I think, and I think you can have more faith for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up forgiveness. Um, this next question talks about forgiveness. It says, can, can one be forgiven who hasn't asked for, nor cares about receiving forgiveness? And let's start with that. There is another half of the question, but can someone yeah. be forgiven who hasn't asked for it or doesn't care about it? Um, I think my short answer to that question is I don't want to purport that I know for sure. Yeah. But I don't think that the person should feel optimistic about it. Mm-hmm. So the, the question is actually technically ambiguous because it depends on See what it literally what it technically says is, um, can one be forgiven who hasn't asked nor cares about receiving forgiveness? Right. Technically, what that refers to is the person who did the wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. So some people will say, "Look, you can forgive somebody who's harmed you, and they can be forgiven." 
you know, and you can do that for your sake or you can do that because it's right or good or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. but I don't think if you are the offender Mm -hmm. and you don't want forgiveness Mm -hmm. that you can be forgiven unless for some reason God credits repentance to you because you repent of a lot of other things. And that thing somehow gets lost in the hollows of life as it moves. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I wouldn't want to say that like, if you did something when you're 16 and you really like forget about it and you can't ask for forgiveness. Right. But that's also why I think Christians should engage in general repentance. God, I'm sorry for Uh everything I've ever done wrong. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh But I I also think that like sometimes. Yeah. But generally I think that the whole existence of hell in the scriptures, that God has wrath and condemnation for some assumes this, that you can't, Uh you aren't forgiven unless you desire to be forgiven. And you accept the free grace of forgiveness. Yeah. There was a, um, a biblical counseling course that we took. So many of the staff here at High Point took this. Well, I guess it was two summers ago. Once mm-hmm. I can't remember, but um, there, this was a a controversial part of the training when we talked about forgiveness because um, it pointed. I mean, I think this example may have even been the passage from Luke seventeen. This may mm-hmm. have been the passage that the training talked about because it said, "If they repent, you must forgive them," mm-hmm. and it it was this. Um, it had the relationship of repentance and forgiveness. And so the the course was talking about, I mean, we should always be at a posture where we are ready to forgive the person who has offended us, but you yeah. can't actually have reconciliation of a relationship unless the offender asks, repents and asks for forgiveness and then you offer it and you should be ready every time. That's what Jesus is saying to us, but that you're not actually going to have restoration of that relationship until both parties are pursuing restoration of the relationship. And that kind of feels like, well, I don't know. It kind of feels a little sticky. (laughs) Like it doesn't really speak to what we, what we want to think about in terms of forgiveness, that we should just forgive everybody all the time. And it gets, I think at the nuance of, well, are we just saying our posture towards them? Are we talking about the restoration of the relationship? Like what's, what's all included there? And yeah. Then- no, I think the biblical doctrine of forgiveness, if you trace it throughout the whole new Testament would say that the offending person should release their claim as soon as possible and as completely as possible in their own heart and before God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, maybe t- toward the other person too, right? But I think that it's also the case that that person isn't operative in forgiveness un- until they repent. Because mm-hmm. I, 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 think, I think that's part of how God t- makes sin morally serious when it's forgiven. I think it has to be recognized and yeah. it has to be rejected and it has to be regretted and it mm-hmm. has to be turned from. Right. To a make make it such that that the the people Christ makes for heaven, he makes them to be people who never wish to sin again, mm-hmm. truly. But mm-hmm. also, like, I just feel like it would be morally cheap to say Jesus died for everyone, and therefore everyone is automatically forgiven. I don't right. think most harmed people could find a way to recognize that as justice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, th- I mean, even think about like relationships that you have, whether it's with a spouse or with a friend, like you've been in in- instances where you have brought an offense to that person, like told them you hurt my feelings in this way. And you know that there are two different ways to experience that. You know, when the person is just 
kind of given lip service and saying, okay, I'm sorry, when, when they aren't actually, versus they may say the same number of words, but you can recognize when they're aware, like, okay, I see what you're saying. And in some way, I, I can agree with you that that was a wrong thing. Like there's, there's a different level of just saying the, saying the words versus, um, when they've, when they've recognized, like you you were talking before about seeing the truth, seeing what it was that happened, lamenting it, wishing they hadn't, regretting it. Like the, those are just different experiences that we have. And I think that there's a reason why we, one feels right. Like there's more, I mean, I've had that before where I've, Scott has told me I've hurt him. I've just, I've known the right words to say, I'll say them, but there's no peace in our relationship. We haven't had actual restoration to our relationship. Not yet. And I actually have to recognize what it is first. Yeah. So what, so with this, how can forgiveness, how can it help the forgiver to forgive someone, even when the object the person of forgiveness doesn't care about being forgiven. That's the second half of the question. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's still spiritually important. Maybe ne- I th- would say necessary. Yeah, I mean, there is, you, I mean, holding a claim on somebody is heavy. And it will, it may lead you to do things that are their own injustices. And so it's really important to release that claim. Um Yeah, I mean, p- people talk about the the um, that there's a lot of psychological benefits to unilateral forgiveness from the part of the the offended person, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I, I think that it easily seems like the most important thing because so, most of us behave and think like atheists, and so we think all there is in the world is just us bouncing against each other. And so, therefore, if you can get a psychological advantage, that, that's all that matters. But biblically speaking, that's not anything close to the most important thing. And um, I think forgiving someone else who's not interested in forgiving you is spiritually necessary. It can't save them. Right. But I think that it's the proper act of faith in relationship to God. So I, I, think, you can, I think you can forgive them before God. Release mm-hmm. your claim, right? Yeah. But, but God has a claim too. Like anybody, anytime mm-hmm. somebody sins against you, God has his own claim in that. Mm-hmm. Because you're his. Mm-hmm. Right. So he has his own claim because that person sinned in his creation against his children with his own image. Like God has a lot more claims than any sin than any of us. Yeah. So yeah. we can still release our claim and the person can still be very guilty. Yeah. You know, that's why they don't just repent to us. They have to repent to God. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? Um. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit now. This is a question about entitlement. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the application of entitlement at our workplace? That can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, part of me wonders if it, that's specifically relative to the racial justice discussions going on um, in terms hmm. of workplace assumptions, culturally speaking, and so on and whatever. Um, I, I'll, it also could just be like how – how should we look at so in, in Luke 17 there's this master slave or master servant relationship. Right. Yeah, should that's we look the way at our I work relationship exactly like that? Mm-hmm. Um and you know, my answer to that would be I mean, kind of. Yeah, but I but I also think you're in a there are gr- agreed upon parameters within work and you've negotiated for the compensation. 
But w- within those parameters, I think you should act. I think you should do what you're told and you should do mm-hmm. it as with as much gusto and labor and joy as possible. Yeah. Um, I think that you should be as effective for your employer as you can be. I mean, your, your job is ultimately to bring your employer value mm-hmm. by bringing yeah. his customers value. Right. And you should be doing that as the best you possibly can. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, but you're not a slave. I mean, there are limits to what the person can ask of you relative to the employment relationship and, yeah. and so on. So, I, so I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't draw like an absolutely 100% parallel, but but I sometimes I think we underestimate how if we agree to do a job, we are in service to the role of that job and we should do it really well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the idea of entitlement that because you did the last thing you were supposed to do in your job, you're you're still supposed to do the next thing you're supposed to do in your job because you do one thing yeah. doesn't mean you shouldn't do another thing. So, um, or because you did your, you like the typing, you don't have to be cheerful or you, everything that is owed right. to another person, you owe them no matter what you've ever done or not ever done or they've mm-hmm. ever done or not ever done. Mm-hmm. And most people just do not want to think that way. And they don't think that way. They refuse right. to think that way. They think mm-hmm. based on how other people treat me, I will treat them. And that is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I saw this in my my sister in a moment of parenting when I was with her and her kids yesterday. And one of her sons, I think he was just tired, had a long day, ne- probably needed to rest, but was too old for naps at this point and was kind of having a breakdown about something. And, and she told him to do something. And it was exactly this dynamic where it was, he felt entitled. He felt like because he thought he had been wronged, he didn't have to do it. And she said, I understand that you're upset, but that doesn't mean you don't have to do the right thing I'm asking you to do. And he did it. And, and, and it was just this moment of like two things came to mind in it. One, you're right. It's not how we want to think. We want to think down to like a primal level of an eight-year-old. We want to think that because we were wronged in some way and probably not as much as we thought in that moment, but we just don't have to do whatever's being asked of us because we feel upset or hurt. And, um, and then too, that it's like, it's so easy to recognize it when we see it in other places, but that's the same sort of thing that I'm doing when I feel entitled. Like I should have that image of my nephew and see like, that's, that's as, that's the big deal that I'm making about this thing right now. And the huff and puff that I'm putting up when I really, I just need to do the right thing that's in front of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's a, ma- it's a major area of human fleshliness, much less than, much more than people think. People think like, oh yeah, right. that's, you know, that's like when, you know, people don't pull it right when they have it good. And it's not, it's yeah anything right. that makes you think you don't have to do the next right thing. Yeah. Anything. And it can be like being enslaved or tortured. Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, literally anything. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, you can have your child killed in front of you and you're still supposed to do the next right thing. It right. might be to kill the person who just, but like, but like whatever the next right thing is, right. that thing that happened to you is irrelevant. Yes. And that's so hard. Beings just don't, yeah. they just don't want to accept it. We don't want to do that. No, not at all. And I, and I don't say that as like, you know, like you, you can be spiritual like me if you do that. Like, I, yeah. Every time I have to do the right thing, I feel that every single time. Like yes. most humans, if you looked at temptation, you would find this in yeah. some version. Like it's one yeah. of Satan's favorites. Yeah, because we fall oh, yeah. for it. It's it's like it's like you know it's like his layup. You know he's like oh yeah I'll get him with this one. You know because mm-hmm. we're so 
our 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 faculties of anger in the way we register injustice yeah are so are so wrapped around this right because because our primal desire to survive and to be secure is about as primal as our sense of being wronged right and so all you mm-hmm. got to do is get mad enough and connect your primal the way you're incensed primally by being wronged and connect that to your primal sense of survival. Right. All that has to happen is those two have to get connected somehow and boom, you got entitlement. Yeah. And it's so easy to connect those. Yeah. And it's not always rational. It's like pretty rational. And then your, and then your mind finds a way to justify it. It's, it's like one of the classic, you have a primal urge and then your brain is just along for the ride. Yeah. And it just, Uh it's, it's, it's like, it's just telling, like coming up with arguments for it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I felt very convicted in the sermon and like, this isn't the first time I'm hearing about the sense of entitlement. Like this is something I really struggle with. And again, like, yes, this is, I, I have recognized the ways that I struggle with this, particularly in my relationship with God, where I just think like, I, I mean, I'm the older brother in the story of the prodigal of the lost son over and over again. I'm like, but look at all these things I've done for you. Why, why won't you give me this thing? Yeah. Because I feel like now, because I've done this, I am entitled. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And you suffered. Right. Your life hasn't gone exactly the way you wanted it to. Right. People have treated you bad because you're half Mexican. You haven't had the number of children you want and the speed you want. Your husband had a bout of depression early in your marriage that was difficult and you were Mm -hmm. so faithful, but it was, it was hard. Blah, blah. You were traumatized in a car accident. Like, you know, you know, with your family's car accident, like how it affected you when you were young. you know, all your, of these, your this parents is exactly, weren't always nice to you. Yeah. These are, this is the track that plays this. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And I have to remind myself every Nick time. Nick doesn't recognize how valuable I am. <laughs> yeah. Constantly. I, I have to tell myself all the time that that doesn't matter. That like, right. first of all, to recognize God sees those things, the hard things that happened, he's not oblivious to them. He was there with me when they happened. I don't have to say they mm-hmm. didn't happen, but that doesn't mean that I now get a free pass to still trusting him as good, to still mm-hmm. choosing to obey him, to still honoring him. Like none yeah, of that. You're, you're not old enough for this. For you, this would be a playlist. But first people a little older, you'd get in like a kind of an emotional mood. Back when there were cassette tapes, and you'd make you'd make a um, a mixtape. I I mean I don't have a mixtape, but I've got my Spotify playlists for it. Right. So, so but see, <laughs> the difference between a, a mixtape and a playlist is you can change a playlist anytime you want. You just move stuff around. Oh uh, sure, yeah. But a mixtape, a mixtape is like a forever thing. Like yeah. you make the mixtape, oftentimes for like a girl or boy you had a crush on or whatever. But or you just like you. It often does come from like a, a moment in your life in a particular mood. Uh-huh. Right. And you would make this tape with like these eight songs on it. And like everybody has that. They have like this mixtape, yeah. which is their like the, the mixtape they play yeah. when they feel unappreciated. My, my entitlement mixtape. Right. Oh, that's so yucky, but just fair. Yeah, the same things up and up, 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 over and over again. It's all yeah. the same stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. I used to have, when I would feel sad, I, I can remember doing this as a kid. When I would feel sad, I would just go to this same set of other things that would make me sad every time. And it didn't matter if they were connected. It was like, oh, my brother hurt my feelings. All right, now I'm going to go through all these other things that made me sad. Mm-hmm. That, like my dad's dad died before I was alive. That was one of them and that I never got to meet him. Mm-hmm. Those are not connected. But I, if I wanted to continue to feel sad and sorry for myself, 
I would just keep thinking about the like and something about a cat. I don't remember what it was. I think it was just yeah. that our cat died. Yeah, isn't it? It's kind of a strange phenomenon. Like it's it's not super easy to be like, oh, like let me come up with an evolutionary argument for that. It's kind of like, yeah, oh yeah, I'm just. It's like I'm tracking the wrongs the world right. has done to me. Uh huh. Just for a playlist. Yes. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, yeah. So I think it's just you gotta. I mean, you gotta know. You gotta know yourself. You know. Right. Mm-hmm. You do. Um, okay. I, I have like these other thoughts that places that I want to go, but it, it mostly is just the same thing. So I'm going to bring us back to the questions that we had. Okay. These are the ones that are not related to the sermon. So just the, the other things. Okay. So the first one is about baptism. Is baptismal regeneration compatible with the biblical gospel? Is this a tier one issue? Okay. So baptismal regeneration is the idea that regeneration happens at baptism. Regeneration is the miracle of the new birth where God gives a heart of stone instead of a heart of flesh by the work of his spirit, where we experience like a a change. We're made a new creation in the words of 2 Corinthians 5. Um, and, And so does this happen at baptism or is that compatible with the gospel? So literally the question is, is it compatible with the gospel? Which to me means, is it, is it illogical if you compare it with the gospel or is it logically incompatible? I mean, I think the answer is no. I think it's perfectly compatible with the gospel. If Jesus wanted that to be the ritual of forgiveness, the, how, how we showed faith and entered by faith, mm-hmm. he could. He could. Um, I think the question is asking, is this correct? Mm-hmm. And um, there is a verse in the Bible that does literally say baptism saves you. And I've had friends from other denominations and stuff that have said, you know, you guys don't really believe that. Um, but I don't know. I think I tend to think that um, you need to compare and interpret that verse with the rest of the new Testament and its teachings. Sure. So I'll yeah. just read it. This is first Peter um, three, 20 to 22 um, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built in it, only a few people eight and all were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand and is at God, God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission to him. I don't want to go through a whole exegesis of that, that passage, but um, mm-hmm. it, it dep- there's a number of interpretive questions. But it, it looks like from the rest of the New Testament, though, that salvation is not directly connected to the ritual of baptism itself, sure. and that a a look there's a ritual logic in First Peter three that isn't literally analytically the logic of spiritually what happens when you believe it are saved. So. For example, if you, I don't want to say that this contradicts mm-hmm. Romans ten nine that says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. Period. Right. Full stop. Right. What you have to do is you have to interpret these so that they go together. It's a, called canonical interpretation. If all of the Bible is the Word of God written, you like compare the texts and you kind of work them out with each other so that they both say what they seem to mean. And yeah. so where this would come out is is that baptism is a is part of the work of a pledge of a clear conscience before God and from God that comes through faith that is ritualized and symbolized in baptism. 
and that it saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Meaning that faith saves and that baptism symbolizes death and resurrection mm-hmm. and the pledge of a clean conscience towards God. And, and baptism is the cul- is the ritual culmination of all of that. And that yeah. dunking in the water and coming back out can be metaphorically or allegorically related to Noah passing through the water and those eight people surviving and living, right? Mm-hmm. Similarly, baptism is like a ritual through which you pass through the water and there, and then you survive, you live, right? Yeah. You buy the resurrection. So it's it's a fairly metaphorical passage in how it's arguing. And so arguing it very analytically when the method of it's speaking is analogical, it's just that's not good interpretation as far as I can tell. So yeah. I don't believe in regener- baptismal regeneration. However, mm-hmm. I think any Christian that refuses to be baptized should be really careful about whether or not what they have is faith. Sure. Because Jesus commands it as a ritual affirming and pledging salvation. And I'm not sure you have a clean right. conscience or a clear conscience if you won't do that very, very simple thing in his name. So in yeah. that sense, I, I might believe in baptismal regeneration because it is confirming of yeah. it, right? And I, sure. I don't know when mm-hmm. Jesus does a full and permanent regeneration. So, yeah. so I would say, no, it's not right. Yes, it, Jesus could have made it. Mm-hmm. Um, necessary for the gospel. Is it a tier one issue? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, tier, a tier one usually means you're not even saved if you disagree on this. Right, right. Right. So it's like the most important possible issue. I think the answer is no. Regeneration is a tier one issue in the sense that like you better know how gen- regeneration happens because that is the basis of salvation. Mm-hmm. But whether or not it happens at or alongside of baptism... I don't consider a tier one issue. Yeah. Nor does anybody I know. But I, I know mm-hmm. that I don't think in like the ritual churches who have historically believed it, like the Roman Catholic Church or in the mm-hmm. Orthodox Church, the people I know in there don't seem to be that way. There are a few, like, of course, more fundamentalisty kind of churches that have come to this view that I think do consider it what you might call a tier one issue. But mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah. I think so. All right. Next question. What is the difference between doing justice and demanding justice? Is doing justice the same as social justice? Okay. So I think the way I want to attack this one is I don't submit to the idea that other people get to define my nomenclature. Which I don't think the questioner is doing that. What I'm just saying is like people will just tell you this means that now. Yeah. And my answer is bull. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, I got an email from Jill today with an article that we're going to read where um, a hip hop artist was saying, I don't say racial reconciliation anymore. I say, I talk about white supremacy because that's what's necessary, right? And apparently because there's an argument about that in the 1990s, the word ra- words rac- racial reconciliation was used a lot and nothing really came of it and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. A, some of the people who are talking about the 1990s didn't live through them. And I think they should be careful about talking definitively about the sociology of the 1990s as someone who lived through the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, as an adult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, I'd be very careful about dismissing movements like John Perkins' movements of racial reconciliation that yeah. have been operative for like 40 years. I think it's extremely right. arrogant to do that if such a person is doing that. I'm not saying they're doing it. I'm just saying right. yeah. you should be really careful about dismissing the concept of racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it probably didn't a- accomplish as much as we would want it to. 
Um, I think if I think younger people in particular tend to think in binary terms of success or failure rather mm-hmm. than in long-term cumulative terms. Yeah. And they think, well, we need to fix the problem rather mm-hmm. than heal the wound, which is a long-term thing, or yeah. grow something different. Like they, they tend to think of these mechanistic metaphors, which I think are fairly unhelpful in terms of human life. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so to say that racial reconciliation didn't work or was inconsequential, I just don't even know how someone would in- do that analysis. Mm-hmm. I, I just, for all that you know, you are yeah. standing high on the shoulders of something you're now dismissing. And I just, yeah. I think that that's just craven. It's I just well, I, it bothers the heck out of me. I a comment on what what you're talking about right now. So I I agree with you in this particular instance about racial reconciliation. I've heard yeah. people talking about that for years. I think like five or six years now. I've heard people saying we shouldn't say reconciliation because how can you reconcile something that was never conciled in the first place? That's the, the language I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, and, and I'm not against that per se. And I don't I'm not saying that talking about white supremacy is bad. Right. No, I don't think you're saying that. But but I guess what I'm going to the 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 comment I want to make is just that there are instances where I think understanding the way that a culture uses a word is just going to is helpful and 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 is not harmful or not hurtful. Like when it's just like a sure, that's fine. I think there are helpful ways for contextualization for your witness to to these particular people that it's useful and it's fine. There are other times that I think it's going to do more harm than good. And we should just be careful to not always just go along with what culture is saying the new language is. Cause it's true that it is really fluid, particularly in this conversation about racial justice, that there is a lot that's what people mean that changes all the time. And you've got to know what people mean. And there are times where I think it's useful to change your language. Like, sure I can do that. And other times where I don't think it's right. Yeah, especially I, I do think there are situations where people are doing it intentionally. Like they're they're so one of the things that I do not submit to either is coming up with a slogan that relieves you of the responsibility of making an argument. And I, that's one of the reasons why I actually I find the use of the phrase "white supremacy" objectionable. Even though I, I on one level there is some kind of argument that needs to be made there and some kind of slogan or saying that needs to be, but, but like just as somebody could say, listen, the phrase racial reconciliation was used in the nineties, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, newsflash, the phrase white supremacy has a history too. Yeah. Right. And what you're doing when you use that word is you, you want to equate like white obliviousness or like people who are kind of like, what, I'm just living my life. And you want to be like, Okay, yeah, but you're you're kind of you're doing it in a certain kind of way, and it's part of a certain kind of structure, and blah, blah blah. And you want to equate that like full cloth with like burning, cutting open pregnant women, lynching, and those are they are they have some relationship in the genetic flow of the history of America, so to speak. I mean, culturally speaking, but they aren't the same thing whole cloth, and they're not they don't have the same mechanism of intention. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same obviousness of judicial meaning. Like, like there's huge differences. And so, mm-hmm. and I think when people say white supremacy, they're trying to do two things. One is they're trying to end the discussion before there's an argument. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you even mean? And how do you, like, how does yeah. this function? And also they're trying to bring outrage from all, all of the heritage of, um, 
racial turmoil and injustice in the history of America kind of into the same present moment as though there's no difference historically. And, and it leads to this like very divisive, two very divisive ideas of the history of America. One, that it is a, that it was birthed in freedom with an original sin of slavery. And it has been working that out ever since and is in that sense a fundamentally good endeavor in the history of humanity and is the freest nation in the history of the world versus everything good in America was blood sucked out of the stone of slavery and every, all of its wealth was produced from the complete dehumanization of other peoples. And therefore everything in you in America is soaked with blood and the, the concepts of Liberty are these cheap inscriptions we seek to like engrave over the over the graves of the people on whom we've the people whom we've devoured mm-hmm. as a nation and those are those are two very different stories and those are both very like when you talk to people in America now especially younger people or just a lot of people I mean, especially people who watch certain news and certain things a lot there's a huge divide there Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to use the words white supremacy, but what I'm what I'm saying is that should be the beginning of a conversation, the very beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because then I think it's like you know when you did math when you were a kid and you'd like write the answer that you were sure of, and your teacher was like, "Sweetie, you have to show your work." Mm-hmm. Like I'm okay with like there being an equation, and then people of people of color, whatever you want to say, I don't actually like that phrase, but, um, but. Um, somebody somebody wants to say white supremacy thing. And they just write that answer at the end of this really long, very convoluted equation, and you're like, "Okay, I'm open to that being the answer, but sweetie, you're gonna have to show your work. Like, you yeah. have to like, you have to connect the dots here, and you have to not just connect the dots you want to connect, but you have to connect them all." Yeah. Okay. And, so bring bring this part. I mean, this is a yeah, larger so, conversation then, back to in that sense, like. The difference between doing justice and demanding justice is precisely what the words ought to signify in the English language. Right, right. Right, like doing justice should mean that you are trying to do justice or effect justice actively. Demanding justice is to say justice is not being done. It needs to be done. And you're trying to define it or like reveal the injustice Mm -hmm. that exists and then make a claim that something must be done. And preferably probably, what that thing should be that's done. Yeah. So so, so the, demanding justice in that sense may have to precede doing. doing justice. Or oh, it precedes sure. it. It's yeah. sort of like yeah. what you mm-hmm. if somebody doesn't freely give you justice, mm-hmm. then you might have to demand justice. Yeah. So that justice can be done. Right. Yeah. And so I, I just think op- operatively, I mean, English English is a fun little language that has words that are just designed mm-hmm. to do different kinds of stuff. And that's why yeah. we have functional vocabulary. And so it shouldn't be hard to know what those two things mean, right? That's, that's part of it. And I think that if we come up with a nomenclature that obscures those sorts of things, then that is direct certain evidence that we're engaging in demagoguery, that our language is a power grab, not a discussion or, or for clarification, yeah. even for revelation or illumination, mm-hmm. right? I think that when we seek racial justice, for example, even, even the work of demanding justice, mm-hmm. The work of a, you have to decide whether you're doing the work of illumination or the work of a demagogue. Whether you're doing you're doing the work of power or a work of persuasion, 
Yeah. I remember when I was interviewing to come to work at High Point, we were talking about racial relationships in the church, multi-ethnicity. And you said something to me, it was very helpful, but you said, I can't remember if you phrased it as a question or or how, but it, at one point you said, you know, are you are you willing to not just drag people down the path of moving towards multi-ethnicity and a, and a better relationship between races? Or are you willing to hold our hands and walk with us because that's the way you're going to have to do it in a church. Um, and that was very helpful for me. I think, especially I was, I was younger. I was mostly working with college students on university campuses. And, um, I still believe much of what I did then, but I, my methodology was, wasn't what, what it needed to be. And it was, um, it was just more shallow and not, I wasn't thinking long-term as much as I needed to. And so that was very helpful for me to understand. That's right. I'd, I want long-term affected change, which involves persuasion and for people's hearts to change and for mm-hmm. them to willingly be a part of moving in a direction. And that, I mean, that's true for everything, whether we're talking about racial reconciliation or something else. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And I, I think this is especially true when... Jordan Peterson talks a lot about getting getting right the level of the level of analysis, right? Yeah, I think that's good language for one of the things that I I believe in really strongly is whether or not you're actually talking about the thing that's actually going to make a positive difference, or whether or not you're going to destroy everything that keeps us from being barbarians. I mean, one of the things yeah. that I've been I've been writing these essays kind of in the background. I know people have been like, "When are these essays next?" Support yeah. <laughs> problems. I've written like a book. I've written like forty thousand words. <laughs> and it's way too much. And every essay is like 16 pages. Cause I'm like, and, and none of it's about racial reconciliation or racial justice. It's all about yeah. what you have to know about Christianity so that you can even talk about it. Yeah. Because I, I honestly, God believe people have no, they have, it's like they they're like, we should, we need to build a house right now. And they literally don't have any tools. It's yeah. like, remember the, there was this movie daddy's home with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. Oh. And Mark yeah. Wahlberg was like, go get your toolbox. And in Mark in Will Ferrell's toolbox is like a screwdriver, a hammer and a tampon. <laughs> and he's like, well, how are we going to fix the house if you don't even have any tools? And like, honestly, I feel like the church is like that. It's like like we, they, we, we have no concept of the history of Christian social thought. We have no concept yeah. of, the, of the theologies of human civics that Christian theologians have worked out for centuries. And, yeah. and partly because we're evangelical Protestants, we're cut off from the Catholic tradition. And the Roman Catholic tradition, and the Orthodox tradition have these huge, voluminous histories of social thought mm-hmm. that are that are like not people are like, well, but they're Catholic. They can't possibly be right. But like they're not really like they're they're not situated in doctrines so fundamentally Catholic that they we can't use them. Like usually yeah. they're appealing to all the same stuff we are. They've just clearly thought it through more yeah. because they're building off people and building off people and building off people right. in the way evangelicals right. really do. And so, um, yeah, I just. Yeah. So for, for, for example, he, the, the question asks, is doing justice the same as social justice? Well, it depends on what you mean by social justice, right? Yeah. I was listening to somebody recently who said, I think you can ruin anything by putting the word social in front of it. Hmm. Like social sciences, or that was yeah. a joke, but like, yeah. <laughs> no, because nobody knows what that means. What does social justice yeah. even mean? Right. Right. And because, what, because, and the reason why nobody knows what it means is because it actually uses a completely different concept of justice than the legal concept that we're used to using. We're used to using a concept of libertarian justice where you you shouldn't harm another person. They shouldn't break pick your pocket or break your leg to use Thomas Jefferson's phrase. And that you have the right to not be molested in your person and belongings and your your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And so justice is that you don't 
you aren't molested in those things. So, well, well, the question is, well, in what context are you not supposed to be attacked in those things? And the answer is in society, in your social relationships. Right. So ju- justice is social justice. Yeah, I was the just social that justice is yeah. redundant. Because uh-huh. like, there's the, no way even to the talk concept about of justice, justice right? Individually, mm-hmm. but you can apologize to yourself. Like, there's no, there's no, like the the very idea itself is redundant. So what that means is, is that when people say social justice, there's something. What, what they're saying they is, right? I want to mean some. I want to say the word justice, and I want all the moral weight of the word justice, but I want it to mean something very different. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, see, the question is, then, okay, is this the end of a conversation or the beginning of one? Are you doing the work of a demagogue where you're going to drop this concept on me and I'm supposed to understand it already and all of its implications? Or are you going to actually work out this idea and what you mean by it? Do you mean analogical justice? Do you mean, do you mean tribal justice? Like, what, what, do you even, what do you mean by social justice? And it turns out everybody means something different. Mm-hmm. Right. But yet, usually what it means is something like this. If you step back from the facts of interpersonal relations and you look at a larger picture of groups of people and how they're functioning dynamically with each other, and you see in the grouping, the lar- those larger dynamics, things that are not just and that produce many unjust outcomes that could never be litigated in a court of law because they're not specific enough and they're not individual right. interactions and transactions – recognizing that's unjust and those systems have to be fixed for a more just society mm-hmm. that's social justice now listen so, i can i could get down with that definition yeah it sounds like um communal justice or like societal justice is the way that you're yeah systemic that. justice mm-hmm. yeah i think you could mean all of those things by social justice yeah. that's why i don't like the phrase social justice right. other than is to it? use it as kind of a catch-all for mm-hmm. the broadest conceptualizations of justice. The problem is, is that what actually happens in society is not people saying, okay, there's this wider kind of justice we want to pursue. But what they say is, is we need to do X because of social justice. And you're like, um, I don't wait. Are you sure? That kind of thing. And so I think that, I think that, I think social justice could be a very useful category in relationship to real discussions about what justice means in its in its full possible meanings or whatever. But I think what it gets used as is a demagogue's cudgel where they just try to beat everybody in submission when they know the thing that they're arguing for may not be just at all. And so they have to appeal to concepts of social justice because they can't apply. They can't, uh, they can't go after it by libertarian justice. And because they're not Christians, they can't argue for analogical justice, the justice of grace. And because Mm -hmm. they don't have the the religious resources of Christianity, though they keep stealing from them by still claiming humans have dignity and are in the image of God. And they don't, they can't use libertarian justice. They have to come up with a whole nother concept. Well, it may be that concept doesn't even exist mm-hmm. because what actually exists is God and God's universe in which we are made in his image in which he rules. And that produces a whole other system of justice that he reveals in the scriptures and that exists analogically between human beings and relationally based on certain dynamics of sacredness. What God says is valuable. And therefore there is justice related to a certain ordering of valuing in the world based on things value. But it assumes you agree with God about the valuing of creation. Mm Mm-hmm. What, what people seem to want to do culturally now and be be non-religious about it is I don't believe in any of these religious valuings of anything, but I'm still going to basically keep the numeric values and try to do the math. And then you wonder why people don't 
cooperate. You've lost the entire metaphysics of the of the morality, and yet you want to come up with some kind of system where you're like, oh, this is right and that's wrong, right? So for people who are actually really interested in a really good definition of what Christians ought to mean by something like social justice and how social justice, because remember, Catholics came up with the word social justice, and mm-hmm. they worked out the idea of social justice much better than it functions in modern social media. Uh, I still believe Michael Novak's book, um, What is Social Justice? Or I'm sorry, Social Justice Isn't What You Think It Is. Mm-hmm. is the best book on social justice. And he basically argues how how you logic for how you move logically from natural law, which is informed by Christian revelation, to the just deserts of other people, what other people deserve from you in the concentric circles of your social relationships. And so it's still justice giving people their due, but it's giving people their due based on the dictates of natural law, which is broader than libertarian justice of not being molested in certain ways relative to your value, relative to value and relative to your responsibilities as an image bearer. It's a thick book and it's a difficult book and I'm sure a summary will come out at some point, but, um, but I think it does the best job of, of seeing, having a Christian vision of social justice, Mm -hmm. which is not, which doesn't ultimately dismiss the idea there. I mean, Christians have to believe in a larger justice than libertarian justice. Mm -hmm. Libertarianism is an, is, can be atheistic, Mm -hmm. right? All, All it means is you can't coerce me. Yeah. Right. Which there's a lot of truth to that because the world is full of tyranny. Mm-hmm. And so in all the ways tyranny should be pushed back, libertarian logic is correct. Every time they're correct where the issue is tyranny, but there's more than just tyranny in the world. Yeah. That's evil and mm-hmm. wicked and unjust in its systems and its actions. And you yeah. need other logics of justice for that. And if you don't have a grace based divine oriented analogical justice, then you, you have to make something else up mm-hmm. and, I'm not sure that you can. I'm not sure that it's reasonably clear. And I'm and that where I think it almost always fails is when you think you can tell other people they're obliged to believe it. It's one mm-hmm. thing for you to say, well, I believe in the categorical imperative of Kant, that whatever, you know, whatever I think is good, you know, it should be, you know, should be done in a disinterested way. Or, I mean, I, listen, I've read the ethics textbooks. I took these, I took doctoral level classes on this. And there's all these ways to try to substantiate justice or ideas of ethics without appealing to God or God's revelation. And you can come up with ideas that are coherent within themselves. Like they don't contradict themselves. Mm -hmm. But when you turn to another human being and say, you have to accept this. Well, all they have to do to dismiss you is say that there's another possible logic of ethics that's reasonable and self-coherent. And there's 50 of them Mm -hmm. that I, that I can eat you if I'm stronger is a perfectly coherent self-referential understanding like argument well as long as that exists and it will always exist right then you can't oblige somebody else to your other self-consistent argue of argument about morality and and get them to agree with it unless you can persuade them or unless you're willing to force them Mm -hmm. which means it's not philosophy at all right 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 and so i think that christians need to recognize i think a lot of christians don't recognize the bankruptcy of justice apart from god yeah they, they believe too much in the Constitution of the United States. John Adams, which who was the, the most evangelical of the main founders and writers of the early Constitution, said, look, this is great for a religious and moral people, hmm. this Constitution, but it's completely inadequate to govern anybody else. If Americans are ethical and religious, this will work. And if they're not, hmm. it will fail. Hmm. And I mean, honestly, I I feel like he's right. I, hmm. I, I mean, I, I think that, that he was, there was a lot of, Perspicuity, 
I forget the probable word for that, but he, like, he could see the future on that. Yeah. And I think we're seeing it in certain yeah. ways. I think that's why we're changing our form of government. I mean, since the 1940s or 50s, um, the religious the religious um, participation was high in the 40s. I still think America had, was growing profoundly in secularization. And as that has increased, especially in the 70s and 80s, we have seen through the judiciary and other means, the United States moved well away from its constitutional founding, like what the constitution meant in its, in its time of founding. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think it's because we became less capable of living under it. Yeah. And so we had to change it. Now, maybe this new system that we'll create kind of like strangely through this weird evolution of our culture will be great. Or maybe it won't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have my doubts. Right. Technology is creating wealth so fast that the social pathologies that we're creating in losing much some of our morality, not all of our morality, our morality is getting better in some ways, but really poor in others. And so far, the increase of wealth and technology has been able to pay a lot of the costs of our increasing immoralities in relationship to like family and sexuality and so on. But I don't know if that'll last forever. At some point, I think the Lord will chasten us. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a question. Uh, one of the next questions, I think, flows well from this. Okay. But I am going to say, I have to go pick up my son sooner <laughs> than if we answered the final two questions just as long. Long, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's, I think this is a, yeah, I think this is an interesting question. It says, how will High Point Church be different on the other side of the current social unrest. Because I think, I'm interjecting myself right here. I mean, I think a lot of people are wondering that about society in general, even even just related to the coronavirus. But now, I mean, we were asking that before George Floyd was killed. So with all of this, so anyway. How will High Point be different on the other side of of the current social unrest? In addition to persevering in the things we're doing, that promote racial reconciliation, what will we add? What should we add? Which attitudes and lessons do we still need to learn? I guess part of your answer is what you said before, that there's so much we still need to learn about a Christian view of how to even start having these conversations like you've been trying to write about in your essays. Yeah, I mean, one of the fundamental questions Christians keep needing to ask is, Am I going to submit to this conversation happening in the world around me? Is it healthy enough that I can, or is it so dysfunctional that I can't? Right. And also there's going to be a lot of policy prescriptions that are going to, that aren't really going to have to do with white supremacy or racial justice. They're going to have to do with much larger questions about economics and what works and human nature and a whole bunch of other things. And right now the policy prescriptions of, Black Lives Matter and some of these movements are, I'm going to be very kind to say, not entirely yet thought out. Um, I mean, there, there have been leaders on national TV that when asked what they mean by defunding the police, they can't mm-hmm. say. And so, um, because most people think that it is insane to literally disband the police. And yet a lot of people are willing to change the police. Mm-hmm. And so it probably means something between those two. You know, right. um, and exactly what we have no idea. So in, in some ways, High Point Church is not going to adjudicate the changes in the police department. That's not going to be for us. We're not going to do that. So yeah. um, one of the things I, I'm interested in seeing is, you know, I've always said that if, if we believe that 
African-American people are, are struggling disproportionately. Obviously, there's a lot of African-American people doing fine. But if they're struggling disproportionately, especially in Wisconsin, especially in Dane County, and we want to help, we probably aren't going to be the people who decide what we're doing. So in some ways, I'm where some ways me as a Caucasian pastor, I'm kind of waiting. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to have conversations with people who are involved in some of these sorts of decisions and being like, you know, be careful about that or, you know, but I'm not, I can't come up with a solution for them. Right. So in some okay. ways we got to see how this all shakes out, what becomes the darling proposals and blah, blah, blah. And then we have to decide whether or not we get on board in terms of the conversations. You know, if I knew then I would, then I would know. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I'm still, I, I still don't even know what some of the vocabulary means. I don't think I know. Yeah. White supremacy is one of them. I still have not, I still have not read an argument for that. That wasn't just presumptive. Like, yeah, well there's white supremacy. If you can't see it, it's cause you're blind. Like, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm still like, you know, you, you had this issue when people started talking about um, white privilege, right? There was like this, this fake, like famous list that came out about like, you have white privilege if, and there were like 30 things on it and included things like, I don't know, like that you could find band-aids in your skin color and so on. It also, and, it, it, and, that's true. It did. And it also, a, yeah. also larger things. Yes. Yeah. It also had some significant things, right? Yeah. Um, but they were, they weren't all universal. And like, and so some people, and so it became kind of this Rorschach test where like some people were like, Oh yeah, I see it all. And then other people were like, this is so dumb. And it didn't like it, some people it moved. And then other people were like, and then there were like implicit bias tests and people who took them, who thought that they got the result they wanted, tended to love them. And like they, they, ha- they aren't scientific in the sense that they right. don't, they don't meet the standards of social sciences. So like they became a Rorschach test. If you're for implicit bias tests, you're woke. If you're not, you're not woke right? When it really should be a empirical science question, right? And so you get all these things. So now that we're, now we're gonna have a discussion, I'm assuming about white supremacy. And so like, I'm waiting with bated breath to, to read about it. I, I read the article this last week, most of the article this last week about white fragility. So like, you know, there's the sort of the hip book out right now, white fragility. You're, if you post that you're in a discussion group on Facebook, you get to keep your job. But like, so I, I read the article and I tend to not like popular books. That's why I've intentionally written three unpopular books. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I always hate popular books because I always think the level of analysis is banal, right? So the idea that white people are fragile when talking about race, like to me that that's an obvious truism. Like, how, like of course they are. Like that, like anything that you don't do regularly Mm-hmm. And that isn't a fundable part of your life. You're going to be, it, yeah. yeah, you're just not going to be weathered on the thing. So like yeah. I used to dive every week and so I could hold my breath for more than a minute. Right. And that was totally normal. And, and almost every time I would drop out of the surface, I'd stay down for 30 seconds or more. I went snorkeling with my family the week being a inlander for like 10 years now. I could mm-hmm. hold my breath for more than about 12 seconds. Yeah. It's just crazy. I felt like such an idiot. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm out of shape for it. You know, I'm, I'm diving fragile. Right. Mm-hmm. When I used to work on the university campus, um, people would call me all kinds of names, all kinds of terrible, hateful things. They treat me like I was a buffoon, right? But for the name of Jesus, and I, it didn't bother me because it happened mm-hmm. every single day. Right. And then, you know, you pastor for 17 years and you're just not on campus very much and with Christians who think you're fantastic. And then somebody like rips, tries to rip you a new one publicly and you're kind of like, ouch. Yeah. Because you're fragile to the thing because you haven't been doing it. So the idea that a lot of white people 
who have been in some way, for whatever reason, sheltered either by the fact they're just not allowed around a lot of African Americans for whatever reason in terms of the distribution of populations of the country, or whether they've been avoidant of it or dismissive of it, and then you shove it into their face. Yeah, I mean, like some very large percentage are going to react defensively and they're not going to listen very well. They're going to do sure. something a counselor mm-hmm. would call dysfunctional if they were doing marriage counseling. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I'm not, I think sometimes people feel like, like that explains everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure mm-hmm. it explains very much at all. Right. Right. Like even when somebody gets defensive and they say, well, what about, they start playing, well, what about, well, the whatabouts can all be true. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, some of these concepts that I think people think are going to be like incredibly revelatory, I'm just not sure. Yeah. That they're going to help that much. Yeah. And I feel the 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 entire conversation, and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the arguments in it. It if it feels like one driven by power, and the more it feels that way, the more people are going to resist it, yeah. even if they shut up about it. I think, yeah. and I think that you know, like there's a number of there's a number of studies that have shown apparently now that racial relationships, how people feel about each other, has gotten a lot worse since 2012. Hmm. A lot worse. Some people want to lay that at the feet of President Obama. Um, it's also kind of the year when everybody got on social media. Like it was kind of the peaking yeah. of yeah. everybody having a device literally in their hand they could attack mm-hmm. each other with. Most of the f- stuff I've read, they think it has much more to do with social media, that social media has had an yeah, incredibly negative what, effect on human society. I mean, I think that because that's also when we started having algorithms for your social media and you just live in your echo chamber. And I think that that Mm -hmm. has increased polarization in viewpoints so dramatically. And, and we don't know how to have conversations with people that we disagree with, even close friends of ours. So I, I would, I would, I would buy that, that it's more related to social media than anything Mm -hmm. else. Yeah. I mean, I I do think president Obama did some things that were practically, that were practically dividing. Like I don't, I don't think he was able to, um, fulfill his promise to be like a uniter or anything like that. I think is ended up being, but I don't. I don't think that he's been. He was as wanton or blatant as President Trump has been. I think President Trump has done has been unhelpful mm-hmm. as well. Um, President Obama was much more sophisticated in a lot of ways. But like, I don't. I think in some ways, like the presidents are in some ways results rather than causes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is. I th- I, I think that. I'm way more concerned about the actual interpersonal dislike and hatred brewing in our country than I am yeah. about all this demagogic language. Totally. And so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so I, I think that's why I have hold the view. I do that. Like if I can say, if I can choose other language because it's going to be more fruitful for an actual conversation and actual relationship. Great. Mm-hmm. I, I would much rather be able to engage in the conversation with a person than not and and if but I think that requires an ability to temper reactions, temper mm-hmm. your your own frustration in a situation, recognizing that the better goal, the longer goal, and harder one is the relationship with the person and having the actual conversation. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I, I also agree, I also agree with John McWhorter, who is an atheist. He's a he's a more heterodox. Um, black scholar he's a linguist by training but he he argues that the this whole the the, the anti-racist movement as a whole functions very much like a religion 
and that mm-hmm. we shouldn't be blind to that. That, um, yeah. that a lot of these phrases are doctrines, they're creeds that you're supposed to repeat and affirm and genuflect to, hmm. and you're not supposed to question their meaning. Like like McCord isn't isn't positive towards religion. So he's like, you know, just like there's some questions you ask a priest and you get to the point where his answer doesn't really make sense anymore and you're <laughs> still just supposed to nod politely. Yeah. He this is what these discussions are like for me. He's like, I don't I don't think that they're I don't think that they're in good faith. That's interesting. And and I don't right and and I agree with I'm agree with McCorder. I, I agree with guys like Glenn Glau, Glenn Lowry and and John McCorder and folks like that who are just like yes yeah, racism is a problem it's a it's a it's a real problem and many of these things need attention but like um f- for example this stuff related to police um i don't see a lot of evidence that what we empirically know and ha- know through the best research is really what is going to get attention mm-hmm. you know um crime is down over the last 30 years police violence at least until the last couple of years had been going down dramatically hmm. over the past years, especially the number of people shot and killed by police departments had gone down dramatically, even with increases in militarization. I think that's changed in the last few years. Sure. Um, plus there's also these huge consequences like Baltimore had improved a lot before the yeah. riots after the Freddie Gray death and murder just took off like crazy hmm. after people like pulled back and were like, Oh, we need to like change the police. Well, there was what, what actually happened is a lot more black people got killed is what happened. And I'm not saying like, Oh, look at black, black on black is important, more important. No, what actually happened was we did something with the police and the result was the police did less policing. And the result was a lot more crime, including violent crime and murder. And the recipients of that were black people. And so I, I like, I realized some of this is not going to be some of this stuff. You're not even supposed to say, Mm-hmm. And it's kind of weird to be like a devout Christian and being like, look, if I have to play the role of heretic in our culture, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Christians are heretics in our culture. Why, why not be a heretic on something else? Yeah. I don't care. So um, it's interesting you say that. Cause I was having a conversation with some friends of mine recently about cancel culture and they were saying something about how they, they just were starting to recognize like, man, if I really want to hold true to Christian doctrine, I'm going to be canceled like in, in this culture. And, and I, I was thinking about like, yeah, that's true. And, and I think it just shows how relatively easy it's been to be a Christian in America for most of, for all of my life, for much of the history of America. Mm -hmm. And that just is changing. And we, but but this is not new to Christianity. It may be new to us here in America, but it is not new to Christianity. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is, I mean, like when I have one of these essays I haven't published yet. It's like, I'm talking about, I talked about white fragility. I'm like, but there's also like, like progressive fragility whenever like a conservative speaks up at a college or like laborer fragility. Anytime like an impoverished person from the developing world takes their job or like, like it's all fun and games until you get called fragile. Right. And like, there are all kinds of fragility. And like, frankly, American Christians are, I think, persecutionally fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, relative yeah. to Chinese Christians. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't make that doesn't make the thing that we're fragile about just. Like it doesn't make persecution just. Right. And similarly, if you attack a white person, you call him a white supremacist in a like get woke mandatory training at a company and they act defensively. I'm not sure. Yeah, is that fragility? Yes, it's fragility. Are they wrong? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a different question. Yeah. Right. And and it's kind of like C.S. Lewis called, call, he had a, an essay, I think it's called On Bulverism. 
and he he called Bulver was like he named it after a fictional guy he was going to write a book about who like Jedediah Bulver who said to his wife something like the sum of the angles on the inside of a triangle are no more than 180 degrees and she says you you just believe that because you're a man like it's, part of me wonders like what in American culture that is actually really healthy and part of human culture is going to get lumped in with white supremacy. Like how are, how are we really going to differentiate these things? What's quote white? Because what happened was is starting in Denmark and then spreading all throughout Europe were a couple, a few enormous awakenings that had nothing to do with slavery. They had everything to do with free markets and freedom and allowing people to pursue certain things and economic changes and the creations of finance and like all these things, which were all produced in Europe and produced nowhere else or didn't endure anywhere else. And then they completely changed the modern world. Okay. Well, now, now it's time to decide what's white and what isn't, right? Is every European achievement white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Or did Europeans come up with the best version of a bunch of things because of a lots of other, for lots of reasons, mm-hmm. many of which were that they were continually conquered and harmed and hurt and oppressed by other peoples who weren't Europeans in many cases? Mm-hmm. Like the word slave literally comes from Slav, which is a race of white people, right? Like this is a thing like Britain, for example, some of the greatest achievements and that we know of in the world came from Israel and England, right? Every single president of the United States ever, including Barack Obama and president Trump have significant amounts of English descent in them for some reason. Don't know why, right? Like England came up with a lot. England is one of the most oppressed places in the entire world until about the middle of the 1700s. Like they were, they were raped and pillaged by everybody. But what also happened was a merging and a confluence of culture through oppression. So because England was almost never entirely conquered and always kind of fought its way back, mm-hmm. each time it was conquered, it assimilated an entirely new culture, right? And when that happened, it, it, it advanced incredibly fast culturally because it, it took any, in everything that the Danes were better at, yeah. And then merged it into British culture. And then everything, and then all, all the way up until the Franks. I mean, the Frankish conquest of England was like, I don't know, 16, 1700s? Like it, it, like it was all the way up until modern. We just, we like to start the clock on England when they went and conquered something. Yeah. But until then, they were basically conquered by everybody. Yeah. Same thing with Israel. Israel was one of the most oppressed, burned over districts in the entire history of the world. But in doing so, they picked up everything from everywhere. Everything the Babylonians had captured, then they got. Everything that the Egyptians had come up up with, the Jews learned. The Jews got everything from everyone, and what it created was an incredibly advanced culture. Yeah. And so when we go through this process of like trying to figure out, well, what's white supremacy? Well, that's actually a much more complicated argument than anybody wants to enter into. Because it turns out liberty, as defined in the Western world, is a, quote, white creation. Like it was being developed in Israel and then it merged and then went and went, came through Christianity and was related to Christian developments and feudal developments until the Magna Carta. Like it's this concept that's been developed for like 2,500 years. You can trace back to Moses at least, but was sort of like created in a present form through these English people who did it pretty badly, right? But like it had never functioned in the world like that before. Neither had economy or division of labor or industrialization. Part of what I'm saying is I think that Christians need to be really careful about um, thinking that the analysis on something as intricate and difficult and historic and so on as things like racial justice, that the secular 
And th- that's like the world is going to give us the right answers. I just, I just mm-hmm. think you should not think that. I think that mm-hmm. we should always be listening to people who do not believe in Jesus for insights because they will have insights. Natural and common mm-hmm. grace will produce insights in them. And, and science is a pursuit of truth and it can produce insights even if people's motivations are, are not entirely focused on glorifying Jesus. So I absolutely believe that we should listen to people and we should yeah. be listening to, to people on all kinds of different sides of these things. But I think that there's a whole education on Christian social thought and like what it means to be human in the world and have a society and all that, that we really should focus on mastering a lot better. And then in addition to that, try to understand these issues related to racial justice and all that. But I think we, the, the short answer, the most direct answer is we don't know yeah. what will be different. We've been doing, I've been doing all of the fruitful things I know to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not convinced yet of any new ones. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to waste my life doing stuff that I don't think is going to work at all unless I have another auxiliary reason to do it. Mm-hmm. So we're already, we already have inner church partnerships. I already have multi-ethnic friendships. I'm already trying to live a multi-ethnic life. I, we already are working to have a multi-ethnic staff. We're already trying to be a church for all people. We're already trying to do, do that in our worship mm-hmm. and in our art. We're already doing that with our finances. We're already like being generous and opening our doors and hospitality to other churches and like we're already doing a ton of things. Like, so hopefully as we learn, we'll do them better. Right. Hopefully right. as time goes on, we'll be more successful. Yeah. And hopefully as we go on, we will see new things to put our hands to. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the things we've done, which just require like physical work, just being there, haven't been very successful so far. So for example, like the, um, the tutoring program that Lloyd was leading, we just, we, we had a hard time getting people to sign up and actually do it. And yet that, that would, that's a really big opportunity. Um, working alongside selfless ambition with Henry Sanders. There's gonna be a lot of stuff coming down the pipe with that and a lot of opportunities. And I'm not going to remake that. Like we're uh-huh. just, I'm just going to tell you about it. And if you, it's in your heart to do something, then there's stuff you can do. So part of it is yeah, that high, high point as a church, we're not supposed to do everything as a church. We're supposed to build people up and then people go out into their lives in the marketplace and all over. And then yeah. they make choices and they do stuff and they, and they do it and they talk about Jesus when they do it. Mm-hmm. And in doing so we have an influence. So, um, so a, I don't think we should think we're going to do it all through the church, but I do think some conversations will change. I do think there's new concepts we'll talk about. I do think there are new insights that will percolate through over time and we'll be able to understand them and be able to apply them in better ways. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's more interest. I think mm-hmm. that there's, I think that there's more interest. And in, I think, yeah, absolutely. Among, I, I think among that. white people, there's, I think there's among some white people that had been resistant. Yes. I think there's a little bit more interest now that mm-hmm. like, they may not say, well, I, they may, they're not going to share your like views of like some radical people that the police are terrible, but they're going to, but they are going to say things like this is, this is getting worse, not better. Like before I thought over time, race relations were getting better and they're not now they're actually getting right. worse. And we, I also have to recognize that our goal is full justice. I think was it Malcolm X that said, if you stick it, if you have your knife in somebody 12 inches and you pull it out to nine and you call that progress, that's mm-hmm. a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so we do want full justice to the extent to which we can do it. And even where the issue isn't justice, where the issue is like dysfunction or other problems within mm-hmm. people who are experiencing um, generational poverty or caught in some of these problems or just trying to get off the street and the life of the street, then we're in, we're, it's our job as Christians to believe in mercy and in right. encouragement and all those things. So even if we say justice ends here, we're not done. 
Right. You know? So I think over time, but like, I think that, okay, let me just give you one quote, big idea. As I tried to help High Point grow, I went from keeping the church from going bankrupt and just having people to having younger people so that we had a truly intergenerational church, right? To having the same number of both genders so that we weren't a we weren't a feminized church, but we were a male and female church equally as much as possible. Then to a multi-ethnic church. And then later to try to become truly an interclass church, right? We may not be able to become a multi-ethnic church really without doing more in relationship to being a multi-class church. That that may just be a thing you can't do. Mm-hmm. And so we may have to do more with the people who are poor, who are struggling with intergenerational poverty, people who are disenfranchised for all kinds of different reasons, if we really want to have people around that don't live lifestyles like we live. Yeah. And so – um, the majority, whether white or anything like high right. point is just high point. It has more of a successful person problem than a white yeah. person problem right now. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, I think that that might be one of the things we find out. Yeah. That's helpful. But honestly, there's, there are things that I've heard that I think just are, are kind of nuts of what we should do. And then there's st- other stuff that people have said that I think are reasonable. We're doing all the reasonable stuff, mm-hmm. even the stuff that seems crazy. Like, pay for another church's building. Like one of the people was like, Hey, you should play, pay for black churches, buildings and stuff. Right. Well, we, we've spent we've been tens of thousands of dollars, like yeah. helping black churches keep their buildings and pay for their buildings and stuff like that. And yeah. so, yeah, so we're doing a lot of it already. We just, mm-hmm. well, we've, we've said a little bit more about it because people want to know if we're doing it, mm-hmm. but we've been doing a bunch of this stuff. We just haven't talked about it because we don't want to be the self-important white church that is like always talking about what they do. Right. Because that's unseemly too. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So. Okay. That was a lot. We covered a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. So um, thanks for listening. Thank you again for asking these questions. I, it is genuinely really encouraging to me that consistently week after week, people have really thoughtful questions that they want to, that they want to engage in and, and um, hard ones, not, not yeah. just easy ones, but hard ones. Yeah, let me say just one really quick thing because I know High Point has a lot of like white conservatives. It has a lot of people, all kinds of different things, but there's some, especially middle aged and and also just white people who, there's some really, really great black voices, black conservative and Christian voices out there right now that whose voices are really helpful and they're a good first step. Like if you're really defensive about all of this, like there's this great, I can't think of his name right now, African American pastor who is, um, it was like, like has been working with Trump. And I listened to an interview with him on a Ricochet podcast. I think it's called Speakeasy. Um, he was so great. He was better than any other secular guests. He yeah. does all kinds of work. Yeah, it's called Speakeasy on the Ricochet Podcast Network. It's two African-American um, hosts. And they interview people of both parties, which is very rare in a yeah. podcast. Uh-huh. And they only got three episodes so far, but they're, it's all on this race stuff. And awesome. it's so good. They're so good. Yeah, um, and good. they're conservative. So if you're like, well, I don't want to be a progressive. Well, fine. But there's there's actually a number of really great black intellectual per- conservatives that you can listen to if that's your persuasion. If you're mm-hmm. progressive, then every voice is this, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't think it's as hard to find them. Um, yeah. But there are there there are plenty of voices. So so if you feel offensive, then just listen to somebody who's a little bit mm-hmm. further than where you are on this right now, and and listen yeah. to what they have to say. You know. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. And I, I do, I, I'll give my last thought too. I thought, Nick, that the sermon that you preached today was a really great um, other look at like, what, what do we do moving forward? We just, we keep doing the next right thing that God puts in front of us to do, which will require forgiveness and will require repentance from many people, many times. And we just keep moving forward. Yeah. I actually, I think, actually think Luke 17 lays out a really nice thing. You know, like, are there any stumbling blocks that we're putting in front of people? Right. Is there anything we need to be rebuked about? Right. Is there anything we need to ask forgiveness for? Is there anything that we need to forgive? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like just starting with there, yeah. all these things that people complain about are effective stumbling blocks. Right. And you don't have to believe that it's white supremacy. You don't have to, you don't have to buy into a certain kind of nomenclature or even moral status of something. If the effect it's having is that it's a stumbling block to another seeing the beauty of Christ and right. being all they can be. And it's, it's creating moral harm to them in Christian language. That's enough mm-hmm. to be interested in doing something about it. And so we yeah. can be directed by that as a church. Yeah, for sure. Great. All right. Well, that's everything. Thanks for your time, Nick. And thanks Thank everyone you, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.